podcast listeners. I'm your host, Jacko Zwetslud, and welcome to the NK News podcast. Today is Monday, March 29th, 2021, and joining me via Zoom are four members of the NK News reporting team to discuss some of the latest developments in and around North Korea. But first, please leave a review about this podcast on iTunes or whatever platform you use, and please share the podcast with friends, colleagues, even enemies and people you don't know, if that's possible. Second, check out NK News, where you can find all the in-depth stories written by the excellent journalists that I'll be talking to today. Consider buying a subscription for a year. It's much more affordable than you think. In fact, if you sign up for the annual plan, it's less than a dollar a day, and it helps to fund the excellent journalism that my colleagues put out every day. Now, to introduce our four guests today, joining me via Zoom, we have NK News and NK Pro founder and managing director, Chad O'Carroll. We also have Jongmin Kim, Min Chao Choi, and Colin Zwerko, three key members of the crack NK News reporting team to talk about some of our most recent stories. Hello, team, and welcome on the show again. Hi there. All right, let's start by talking about missiles. Uh, Chad, Jongmin, Colin, you've all written uh, stories on missiles in the, the last week or so. It, it seems since our last round table of almost exactly a month ago, North Korea has finally tested some ballistic missiles once again in violation of UN Security Council resolutions and catching President Biden's attention. And in case anyone missed the first launch on March the 21st, they did it again, another one on March the 25th. Uh, in preparing for this podcast, I went to the NK Pro missile tracker, which all NK Pro subscribers have access to, and that shows every single North Korean missile launch all the way back to 1984, their quantity, type, launch date, location, and outcome. So uh, that's a, a bit of a plug for NK Pro there. Uh, what have they launched uh, these last two occasions, and what's it all about? Who wants to kick us off? I'll give a brief overview of it first. Um, it was a short, one of the new short range ballistic missiles that were paraded in during the parade recently. Mm -hmm. um, there were two projectiles and they were fired from the Hamju area of South Hamgyong province at a little bit after 7 a.m. According to Joint Chief of Staff um, of South Korea, they flew around 450 kilometers at an uh, a pinnacle altitude of 60 kilometers, and they were both launched from land, according to JCS. Okay, and so that's uh, pointing in the direction, the general vicinity of Japan, is that right? Uh, yes, EC, or Sea of Japan. Okay. Uh, was that the first then, of the two launches? Well, we, we also had a couple uh, likely cruise missile launches, which took place um, about a week prior uh, into oh. the West Sea. Uh, and those, we believe, were uh, potentially a Kumsong-3 surface-to-ship uh, missile, uh, which, incidentally, the Biden administration described as not being in violation of um, United Nations sanctions, which only, uh, only prohibit uh, ballistic missile launches uh, which was why um, the Biden administration described the testing as, quote, business as usual. And then uh, that seemed to sort of trigger a, a, a minor spiral, uh, negative spiral of uh, U.S.-North Korea relations and mm. statements and, and so on. The oh, difference good. between the two, right? So the, the, the test last weekend or, you know, over a week ago, those were not reported immediately by the by the militaries of South Korea, the United States, who uh, detected it, right? So yes, normally it comes out so pretty they, quick, doesn't it, through the Joint Chiefs of Staff? Well, it was only it's because of the different types of missiles. So I really, really the the community of experts were really trying to play down those initial tests from ah. over a week ago, and saying uh, these are more can more uh, typical training, military training, but the the uh, the test of the new type uh short-range ballistic missiles on march 25 actually the you know biden said that the previous ones weren't a provocation and then these ones were uh, uh were a violation of of u.n sanctions so i guess there's the difference between the, the two types it's difficult for for non-experts to make sense of that uh you know one not being a provocation and the other being a provocation is it simply uh, the type of missile that's being used that uh, that is the defining issue just one yeah. thing, like I, I, I just really hate this word provocation because mm -hmm. it's so US centric. 
Like if, if we view a missile test as a provocation, then how can you not say that uh, military exercises here are a provocation to North Korea? Like I really think it's important to use less charged uh, terminology because the, you've got to remember North Korea has a missile research program where engineers count on testing new designs to uh, further their um, technical capabilities and like if you view every test as a provocation it, it undermines the fact that these engineers need to test to push forward design there's also the fact that the artillery forces of north korea um the the uh, teams that work on launching they also need to train to know how to use these um uh, missiles be they cruise missiles ballistic missiles and training is not by and large seen as a provocation so i think i just you know, it's just a, a small thing, but I, I think that this wording is problematic and, uh, yeah, it, it's an in, incorrect way to view a lot of these tests. Okay, yeah, but let's throw something from back at a... you, Chad, there. Uh, we, we, uh, as you'll remember from our recent podcast with Steve Tharp, um, exercises in South Korea, the, 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 uh, the North Koreans are not even aware of the goings-on of exercises, uh, except for the fact that they're being announced. They're actually technically invisible from the North. So that, that's, yeah, the, that's to answer your question as to why exercises in and of themselves aren't provocations. Right. Well, it doesn't North Korea doesn't always come out so explicitly in their statements, but I believe the reason they're most, uh, the, the, the thing they take most issue with, with the joint drills is because they're joint with the US. Not If South Korea was doing them by themselves, uh, I don't think that they would complain as much, but who knows? But mm. no, I think, on the, the ballistic missiles, I think the reason why they might call it a provocation is because they're speaking technically about it violating sanctions. And I guess there might be some arguments about whether it's ballistic, you know, how do you define ballistic these days? It, it's technically a violation of things which all the, the Security Council came together to agree upon, including China and Russia, mm. uh, which is surprising when you think about it these days. Uh, they yeah. would defend They would defend North Korea's right to test those things, probably, but... Now, Colin, didn't you write something about it being a, a newly developed tactical guided projectile? Well, that's you know North, that's North Korea's description of it. Um, right. From what we heard from what we heard from experts, it's uh, a version of a missile that they've been developing for years, but mm. they've supposedly well, you can see that they increased the size of it, and then they claim that they increased the payload uh, capacity of the missile and and a new paint job. On the oh, well, that's important too. You've got to have them looking nice. Uh, Jongmin, weren't there some problems in coordination of uh, the release of information between the, the South, South Korea, Japan and the US? That was such a mess in the morning. Um, usually um, when, when South Korea or Japan or United States, they release information about the missile launches, they at least um, talk about it almost at the same time, mm -hmm. but this time uh, Japan was the first to um, first to announce that North Korea um, fired those missiles. So the South Korean um, media, local media people, they were waiting for JCS confirmation of it, including myself. And the JCS took almost half a half a day to confirm um, with different numbers actually of what what Japanese um, DoD was talking about. Um, now, sorry, are you talking about the launch that happened on the on uh, 25 March 25? Yes, yeah, one the short range ballistic missiles. Okay. Uh, Japan was quick in the morning. Um, they released information very quickly, and then the prime the prime minister um, went on went live on air to give a very harshly worded statement against North Korea. But then mm. JCS in the morning they waited until the National Security Council of South Korea. Uh, the emergency meeting ended, and when reporters asked JCS, like, why, why are you guys not letting us know about, uh, like, the altitude or the range, and they were like, oh, the NSC is still going on, so please hold, oh. and the reporters were not happy about it. Right. Now, uh, North Korea used some uh, florid language in response, uh, accusing President Biden of gangster-like rhetoric. Is this their first personal insult directly at him? I wouldn't Call, I wouldn't characterize that as a as a personal insult against uh, Biden. Not not least in the way that they have in the past. A few years ago, they called him a dog huh. that should be put down. Right. <laughs> yes, they um, also used the same rhetoric at one stage about President Trump, as I recall. 
Uh, but yeah, I, I was just but this one. Mm. This one didn't name Biden. Uh, it ah. just said the new U.S. Uh, president or executive or something. And okay, um, it accused it accused him of gangster-like logic, uh, and that's described as you know you can test your missiles, but we can't test ours. That's gangster-like mm. logic. So it wasn't really like you're a gangster. It was just ah. yeah. So they really still haven't said much about the new president yet, have they? No, and I think the statement didn't close the door on on the possibility of talks. It said, uh, you know, there could be consequences if you keep going down this road. But mm. to me, at least, uh, and some other people that I've seen commenting, it doesn't, it does not absolutely close the door, but it's just another kind of the same thing they've been saying for a while, which is stop doing what you're doing or else you won't have any chance at talks. But I think they're just saying we're going to continue developing our, our weapons and uh, if you want to come around, you can come around or, you know, we'll just we'll keep showing you what we're doing. Now, yeah, North Korean. Oh, sorry. Sorry. Uh, it was it's just a pretty classic statement that that keeps being reiterated by other officials as well. Like this morning, um, Cho Char-su of MFA, he released a statement um, not just about That's the United the States, but also UK and France. Um, so saying that these three countries test intercontinental ballistic missiles, and one of them just um, increased like the development of nuclear warheads. So that's something like a gangster-like logic and how that's how um, they were complaining against how these missiles and weapons are not being discussed or criticized in the UN Security Council, but theirs are. Okay. And this follows the United Kingdom uh, looking closely at expanding uh, it's uh, arsenal of nuclear warheads, which is in contradiction of the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty mm. and its commitment to disarmament as an MPT member. So I, I fully sympathize with the North Koreans on that. The, the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty is increasingly a mirage, and uh, it's just the epitome of double standards when it comes to nuclear weapons, haves and haves nots. Do as I say, not as I do. Uh, North Korean state media published a commentary from top North Korean military official Ri Pyeong-chol. He said a few interesting things, but one of them was a remark in which he kind of preempted suggestions that the North might be trying to get President Biden's attention. Yeah, well, he said, we're not doing this to get your attention. We're not doing this for a reaction. We're doing this to develop our, our military capabilities. And I think uh, on its face, absolutely, 100%, that's true. Um, I think you can, I think it's really fair to say that they are keeping the U.S. in mind with their, <clears throat> with their statements mm. and the way that they are presenting, you know, they're still hiding uh, anti-U.S. Uh, propaganda. They're not outwardly denouncing the U.S. all the time like they were back in 2017 and before. So uh, I think they're still being really cautious and careful about how they treat the U.S. publicly. But I don't think testing the weapon is necessarily at this time to get their attention, but it's to keep developing in order to keep the pressure on, in order to keep their defense strong. Uh, I think we should bear in mind that all these rhetoric, um, it was already in the January Party Congress statements by Kim Jong-un that um, un they, they are not that interested in diplomacy that much anymore and they will put more effort in boosting defense capabilities whatever happens and that's what's just happening right now but they didn't, didn't, have they, didn't be... they describe didn't they describe the u.s as like the principal enemy at the congress yeah yeah yeah, they... yeah but they have to be interested in diplomacy in some way because they are not going back to a time i mean maybe they're just not interested in being in so much harsh rhetoric against the u.s and turning up public opinion against the U.S. in you know really you know vi like violent language, extreme kind of way like they have in the past. Maybe they're just pet beyond that. But I think they really are still interested in in doing something in talks and getting some sanctions relief. But they will say that they're not interested in sanctions relief, or they're not interested in in unaffected dialogue. But they are. Are you, are you saying they're? Are you saying they're playing hard to get, Colin? <laughs> uh, sure. I mean, I don't know if you wanted to characterize it like that, but what's been South Korea's response? I understand that South Korea is planning to also test a rocket of its own. Yeah, um, they just did an engine test recently and Moon Jae-in was there and South Korea's reaction, um, although uh, JCS reaction in the morning was a mess. 
Um, the day afterwards, I think, or a, a couple of days afterwards, was the 11th anniversary of the sinking of Chunan. Yes. And Moon Jae-in's statement was actually quite um, hawkish compared to his usual um, rhetoric. He said that um, any countries um, that um, threatened them, um, South Korea is capable of a world-class missile capabilities that are enough to defend um, themselves. That's a bit out of character for him, even given that it was the Chonan Memorial. Yeah, but usually during a defense-related events, Moon Jae-in is, is a little bit more hawkish than usual. Ah. Directly um, refer to North Korea's mis- the short-range ballistic missile test, but um, as Moon always does, he mm-hmm. um, wanted North Korea not to close door on diplomacy and said that the missile's timing, it was um, not desirable because US North Korea policy review is still ongoing and that now is the time that the three actors, Seoul, Washington and Pyongyang should really resume dialogue. Yes, well, that, that is the, uh, it's, it's kind of sad, isn't it? You know, the ever present call to, uh, to dialogue that never gets answered. Uh-huh. Let's move on then to our second story today uh, about the uh, the very first time that a North Korean citizen has been extradited to the United States to stand trial. Min Chao, could you tell us the basics of that story, please? Uh, sure. So, uh, Mr. Munchal Myung was a North Korean businessman operating outside of diplomatic cover in uh, originally Singapore mm-hmm. and then Malaysia. Was arrested in Malaysia in 2019. Um, with intent to extradite. Uh, He and his lawyers went through successive appeal attempts through um, increasing levels of uh, Malaysian's justice system in order to stop the extradition. He was extradited on March 16 or 17, depending on whether you're talking about it from the United States perspective or from the uh, Korean slash Malaysian perspective. Mm -hmm. Um, Immediately afterwards, uh, Pyongyang, severed diplomatic ties with Kuala Lumpur on March 18, so the next day. Um, And at that time, we didn't know that Mun had been extradited, uh, although the KCNA announcement did accuse um, that of occurring. Um, And then a couple hours later, Kuala Lumpur um, officially also cut diplomatic ties uh, with Pyongyang and told North Korean diplomats to leave the embassy within 48 hours. Now, how many diplomats were there still in, in, in Malaysia when they were told to go? It wasn't an ambassador, but there were there were some staff, but they haven't had an ambassador since the, the 2017. Mm. Or, uh, what, what was the date on the, the, um, the assassination? The assassination. Of the Valentine's Day 2017. Oh yeah, yeah Valentine's so, Day twenty. Yeah, so Malaysia North Korea relations really deteriorated mostly then, and then right. kind of tried to come back from that assassination at the Kuala Lumpur airport. The, the two sides tried to come back based on the relationship of the uh, the former prime minister um, in Malaysia. But ever since he came out of office, uh, or he left office maybe like last year or recently. Mahathir uh, Yeah, they haven't. Uh, the relations haven't picked up on uh, resuming full-scale diplomatic relations. But I, th- I think, was it about 30 people that left? 33 people left, including children. Um, so there were diplomats, family members. Uh, they flew to Pudong, uh, Shanghai Pudong Airport. Um, so, you know, it was a fairly big embassy in yeah, London. Yeah, in London, there's, uh, I think, only five diplomats at the max. And... Um, uh, yeah, it's a pretty small building that they all live in, so probably like under 15 in total, maybe. Yeah, so that's relatively big. And were there any Malaysian diplomats left in, in uh, North Korea, or had they already left when the ties were cut off? All of Malaysia's diplomats left Pyongyang in 2017. Right. Um, there were only, I believe, three, sta- three members of diplomatic staff um, and their families. But um, after the VX attack uh, and Malaysian police taking into custody several North Korean citizens, um, Pyongyang uh, engaged in a little hostage diplomacy back, set a travel ban on Malaysians moving in Pyongyang and North Korea, which effectively trapped the uh, diplomatic staff. And that was only lifted after Kim Jong-un's half-brother's body was taken back to North Korea. And... Once they were free, they left. 
So I, I imagine, well, would it be fair to say that uh, the extradition of Mun Chol Myung to the United States would have been unlikely if Malaysian diplomats had still been in North Korea, given past form? It's the, the Malaysian justice system. I, I don't know how they could have been influenced to, maybe the US wouldn't have requested, or maybe yeah. they would have, maybe Malaysia would have said, don't request this extradition right now. I don't know, who knows? Yeah. Hasn't right. there been some? Hasn't there been some big Malaysia US um, problems recently? Uh, I, I can't remember the, the details, but I heard some analysis saying that the reason Malaysia was being so compliant with the US was maybe to patch over some of those recent uh, bilateral issues. Mm. The diplomat in charge, I think, just came out and said uh, he. He spoke to reporters in front of the embassy, but it was a very similar statement to the the one that was released on KCNA about the severing of of uh, diplomatic ties and the reaction to the initial uh, um, extradition. So it wasn't like a very unique statement, but just similar. Okay. Yeah, it was Kim Yusong, the charge d'affaires, and he said that um, Malaysia is like pro-U.S. subservient or something. Mm. Now, these uh, North Korean diplomats who flew to uh, to China, are they expected to be able to return to Pyongyang, given that the border is effectively sealed at the moment? No, they're not expected to return. Um, North Korean nationals are having an exceptionally difficult time getting back into North Korea because of uh, border closures. I mean, even the new ambassador or the old ambassador to China is still in China, even though the new ambassador to China has begun his duties, mm. um, just because it's almost impossible to uh, get into North Korea right now. Right. I, mean, I would say that North Korea is, is taking steps to, to perhaps alleviate that complete block sometime this year. The Russian ambassador in Pyongyang reported uh, a couple, maybe a month or two ago that uh, North Korea was organizing these disinfection centers all across the border to try uh -huh. to get trade restarted. So. I don't know if they'll be stuck forever. I think that North Korea probably wants to to get something going, but they're trying to deal with uh, their their paranoid understanding of the science on the virus. Um, mm. Are there any other recent examples of countries that have been put into difficult situations by having to comply to um, US-led sanctions against North Korea, for example, by extraditing or expelling North Korean citizens? No one else has extradited a North Korean citizen to the United States. So on that level, it's quite unprecedented. But just yeah, I mean, I this... think you have to look at it really uniquely, how, just how unique and uh, how much of a big deal it is, I think, is really makes this situation different from previous legal situations in, involving North Koreans. Right. Jacko, on this, I was, talk I was talking to Peter Ward yesterday about this case because we were thinking about what might happen to the family members um, of uh, Mr. Man back in North Korea um, because presumably before he was extradited, the North Korean diplomatic staff would have had a chance to brief him about how to uh, work with U.S. investigators. Mm. And I guess there were like multiple things that could happen either he could completely comply with their the you know the investigation share intelligence potentially even defect uh on the flip side he may be briefed that if he does so he's going to put his family at tremendous risk yeah. and uh maybe encouraged to just stay completely quiet and serve out whatever sentence they give him and then what was the thing i found really interesting about talking with this to pete yesterday is and maybe Michelle, you know about the the numbers here, but like, what kind? How many years would he likely face for a set like a, a a series of crimes like this? When in Singapore with OCNT specialist and and very similar crimes, we've seen two year fines at the very max, penalty you know financial penal penalties of the several hundred thousand dollars at the very max. If that's the kind of penalty that's looming, he may just decide to not say anything. And um, and just play it safe for his family's behalf. Yeah, Minchao, could you give us some uh, ideas of, about that? What what he's charged with and what kind of a punishment he faces if found guilty? Um, sure. So he's ostensibly been extradited on counts of money laundering. Um, this is 
something that I think gets confused a lot in international media is that he's accused of violating international sanctions for luxury goods smuggling, which is true, but it's up to individual nation states to determine how they're going to enforce sanctions. Mm -hmm. Breaking sanctions doesn't mean that you're going to get sent to jail. It really depends on how it's enforced country to country. And um, it's actually very unclear how the U.S., would enforce luxury goods sanctions, um, even though they make it the highlight of the case because it's something physical to talk about. Right. Um, he's more of a money launderer facilitating mm. the daily needs of through the US North, financial system. Yeah, through the US financial system using US dollars. That's where um, the US has uh, jurisdiction because every time you use US dollars, a US correspondent bank is almost always involved. Mm -hmm. And that gives the US jurisdiction. Um, so I just Googled this for you. Misdemeanor money laundering can result in jail sentences up to a year long, but um, I'm also seeing sentences up to 20 years in prison. So it really depends oh. on what kind of message the US wants to send to North Korea. Right. And also broadly, um, you know, like other nation states that have uh, had unilateral U.S. sanctions put on it, like Iran, um, this could be a really uh, big precedent. Um, something else I wanted to bring up, it's not very clear where his wife and daughter are right now. Um, mm. It's possible they could have returned uh, with the North Korean diplomatic staff, or they're still in Malaysia, or they were also extradited with him. It's um, and, and their existence um, and if they're in the care of other North Koreans um, could mean whether he is silent, whether he flips or um, yeah, any right. options he chooses. Yeah, it does so seem right. in theory to be the kind of crime that potentially any North Korean who doesn't have diplomatic cover, um, who's dealing with US dollars around the world could be charged with. Is that correct? Yeah. And, and the, the, that's true. But the, the other thing that I think is going to be interesting is like how um, prosecutors in the United States uh, judge the facts or whether they take into consideration the fact that no North Korean really has any autonomy overseas about, you know, they receive orders, get X amount of red wine, get, um, you know, Chanel, uh, Christine Dior, like whatever it is, like get get these luxury brands what can they do besides try their best to get them? And if that involves breaching laws, like are, are they responsible personally or is the, the state going to be, mm. is it gonna, some responsibility of the state going to be considered? Yeah. They already charged him personally. So I think they already decided that he's responsible personally. Yeah, but on that the prosecutor's might, it perspective. Might, it made, you know, how far they go after him personally with, with sentencing and stuff may be, you know, it may take that into account. I would, I would hope it does. Okay, well, we're going to have to move on to the next topic there, but thanks, Min Chow, for giving us the report on that one. Uh, John Min, uh, there's been a lot of diplomatic activity in the region in the last week relevant to North Korea. Some meetings, quite a few meetings, correct me if I'm wrong, there's been uh, South Korea, US, Japan, US, Russia, China, China, US, and Russia, South Korea meetings all in a short span. And a lot of the time, uh, there's been some discussion about denuclearization of North Korea. Can you give us a bit of a wrap up there, John Min? The ones that North Korea were the main topic, especially were uh, the Tokyo-Washington meeting and mm -hmm. also South Korea and U.S. meeting. Um, Kim and she uh, sent each other verbal messages as well, where they, where it seems Kim Jong Un said something about inter-Korean relations and United uh, relations with the United States, but he did not um, explain in detail. Um, uh, Washington, um, Blinken and Austin went to Japan and South Korea uh, for the first time under their new title to discuss a variety of alliance issues as well, mm -hmm. and also the issue. Um, and then after uh, Blinken and Austin visited Tokyo and then came to Seoul during the joint press conference, um, a lot of reporters asked them um, about North Korea denuclearization. Um, and it seemed that they were not exactly on the same page, although they said that the alliance is ironclad. Mm -hmm. um, Lincoln, during Tokyo meeting, talked about UNSC resolutions and um, in, in Seoul as well, he talked about North Korea's quote-unquote egregious human rights um, abuses and um, talked about how North Korea is a threat. 
Um, so reporters asked them um, what they think of the term denuclearization, and uh, Blinken actually during the press conference he refrained from like going into it, but he uh, mentioned the term denuclearization of North Korea a couple of times during his trips. But Chong Yong um, actually, in a surprise um, response, he said that South Korea actually thinks it's more appropriate or accurate to refer to as denuclearization of Korean Peninsula. Mm -hmm. But his logic was interesting because it's quite different from the North Korean version as well. You didn't name the the, the, the titles of these people, I think you need to clarify. Like All right, sorry. Uh, U.S. Secretary of State uh, uh, Blinken and U.S. Defense Secretary Austin, they both visited Tokyo and Seoul. And then when they came to Seoul, um, they held a meet joint presser with um, South Korean Foreign Minister Chong Yong and also South Korean Defense Minister. And reporters were asking them about um, clarifying whether it's denuclearization of North Korea or Korean Peninsula. Um, Blinken, during his Tokyo meeting, referred to as denuclearization of North Korea as in considering North Korea as a WMD threat um, and using all sorts of methods to bring them back to their, the dialogue table. Mm. But um, Foreign Minister Chong Yong actually, he responded in a very surprisingly straightforward way that South Korea actually prefers the term denuclearization of Korean Peninsula mm. and not North yeah. Korea and said that it's more accurate um, saying that um, in in their, uh, the way they term it is in that uh, South Korea and North Korea already agreed in 1991 to both denuclearize. So what South Korea means by that is that, oh, we have already denuclearized, so let's do it together. So it's Korean Peninsula. Uh, but it's different uh, than the North Korean version because North Korean version involves the discussion of US extended deterrence in South Korea, and, uh, South Korea as well. So we seem to have three different working definitions right now of denuclearization. Is that right? Uh, yes, that's correct. Wow. Uh, gosh, that is all quite a bit messy. <laughs> uh, Chad, any comment on that? Uh, well, yeah, I listened to the CSIS podcast yesterday. That I think it was taped late last week, and they were um, talking about this same issue as well. Uh, I think it was Sumi Terry. She, she said that she thought that this utilization of different... Um, phraseology for describing the goals suggests that there may be some real uh diplomatic gulf between what the south korea and the u.s wants and i've heard other people state that it may have been uh the u.s officials misspeaking mm. um maybe just confusing the two terms uh, i did ask a south korean government source and they said that there is no daylight between uh, ah, <laughs> Um, so yeah, I, I, you know, part of me thinks this could just be much to do about nothing. The other part mm. of me does think that, that Sue is right. And that, that there is a, you know, a foundational difference in vision and, um, and the Biden administration is just seeking to jettison prior commitments made by the Trump administration, which very clearly in the Singapore declaration agreed to pursue the denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula. So yeah, let's I watch this space. It was a little bit confusing at the end because after uh, after all the kerfuffle, the uh, U.S. Secretary of Defense Austin did use the term Korean Peninsula, so people were mm. like, "Oh, are they using it interchangeably?" Right. Um, and he also mentioned there's no daylight with South Korea on this issue. But Chong Yong, I watched the live presser, and Chong Yong um, didn't look that happy about that mm. term. So we will still have to see if they Can ever. I the term yeah i mean i think uh we're getting all caught up in you know uh which term does which side use but it really all just comes down to uh how are they actually going to attack this issue in talks if they ever get back to the negotiating table with north korea so uh, it's clear and i think jungman has the the statement in front of her that where north korea described their definition of denuclearization back in 2018 but I think fundamentally, North Korea believes that denuclearization will involve getting rid of the threat of the U.S.'s ability to use nukes against North Korea. So it's really about pointing nukes at each other. Mm. And that can only be solved through uh, improving trust. And that's a whole other ballgame. So mm. um, maybe don't get too caught up in how they're using the term. It's just, is it going to piss them off? Is it not going to piss them off? Are they going to be able to get to the negotiating table? Uh, I think that's what's important about the term, the, you know, how they use that term. Mm, okay. 
Um, now, Chongwen, very briefly, the uh, North Korea Olympic Committee held a meeting in Pyongyang last week. Are they expected to send any athletes to Tokyo this year for the um, audience-free Olympics? I checked with the Olympics Committee in South Korea that week, and it seems um, North Korea will have to send the final list of um, entry list of athletes by at least July 5th if they want to um, join the game, but it mm. seems not until now. Um, and just to be clear, the meeting itself is pretty annual, not like every every year, but it was still held in 2019 um, around the same time. Uh, and they did not mention it, whether or not they discussed Tokyo Olympics. So maybe the meeting itself, some experts were saying that it's not exactly just about the Tokyo Olympics, but also about domestic sports games and also potentially the Beijing Olympics in 2022. Okay. All right. Thanks, Jongmin, for that. Colin, we turn to you now. Riddle me this, Colin. How long does it take to build 10,000 modern flats? My, it, it's supposed to take under a year for North Korea. That's what they promised. Uh, that's what Kim Jong-un promised last week. 10,000 um, flats in under a year. I don't know what the math is on that per day, but that seems pretty, that seems like quite a feat if they managed to achieve that. Uh, I looked a little bit into comparing it to South Korea, for example, in Seoul. And um, just in this is 10,000 homes in Pyongyang only to be yes. built this year. This is what this is what Kim Jong-un announced last week uh, after announcing these plans back uh, last month. But in Seoul, uh, they build much more than that um, in a year. So it's it's not a technical feat, but it's, you know, North Koreans uh, has different building standards. Well, but, and, and North Korea doesn't have quite the same sort of a construction jebel that we have here in, in South Korea. Yeah, right. Exactly. But so, yeah, I think it's 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 doable. I can, I can explain a little bit about what what this is. So Kim Jong Un uh, had a groundbreaking ceremony to, to kick off this construction uh, of 10,000 homes in, in this new neighborhood on undeveloped land in a kind of a, a remote area of, of southeast Pyongyang. Um, so it'll be 10,000 homes that are due by the end of this year. And it's part of this 50,000 homes in Pyongyang before October 2025. That's the new five-year plan. Wow. So, uh, and then also Kim Jong-un threw in the fact that there are 16,000 homes currently under construction throughout Pyongyang. And I think that refers to like these uh, kind of really slow moving uh, concrete apartment blocks that are you see mm. all over Pyongyang that either delayed or something like that. So 70,000 homes before the end of, uh, 2025, which is again less less than what we see in other countries. Is a lot of that built by uh, non-specialist military labor? Well, they're quite experienced. Uh, they can. So, for example, uh, Kim Jong Un said that the framework construction of these this is like more than a couple dozen buildings. One of them is a 50-story, uh, pretty fancy-looking tower. And the, the framework construction of all this should be done before the uh, the first half of the year is over, which is the end of June. So that's three months from now. Wow. Um, and if you look back at the previous giant street construction project that Pyongyang did uh, in 2016 and 2017, it's called Ramyong Street, uh, which is the, the has the tallest buildings. Uh, well, not the tallest, but some of the tallest buildings in Pyongyang. Mm. Uh, they actually completed framework construction of a 70-story tower in just about three months. So I would oh. say it's absolutely possible. Mm. Um, and they've really started pretty quickly this week and started construction this week. Right. Yeah. And there's also some plans to build some fancy terrace apartments that teachers and scientists will live in. Is that also, uh, does that figure into this number that you mentioned? This is a different project. So that, that 10,000 homes, that's for the purpose of Kim Jong-un saying uh, to quote unquote, uh, solve the housing problem of the citizens of the capital city once and for all. Yeah. And uh, he describes the housing problem as uh, people in, in Pyongyang not having a quote unquote cultured and stable living condition. Mm -hmm. So he wants people to have a, a more cultured and stable living condition. That's ordinary people probably moving out of uh, I would guess these small homes that are packed together in that area of Southeast Pyongyang right? Um, that have been there for decades and they're um, old kind of, yeah. So, uh, but this, a couple of days later, 
state media reported that Kim Jong-un uh, was looking at the designs for another project, um, which is in the Mansu district, right by the, the, the two big statues of Kim Il-sung and Kim Jong-il, right behind yeah. that. There's this hill where there's a mansion on this hill surrounded by a wall and trees. And uh, I th it looks to me like a mansion probably owned by Kim Jong-un, but I don't know the purpose of this mansion. Mm. Um, so they started to actually demolish this, which is pretty interesting, uh, earlier this month. And they're going to build a couple dozen or you know, maybe like three dozen apartment blocks with these balconies that overlook the Potong River. And also the people will have a crazy view of the Rugyong Hotel, the infamous Rugyong Hotel, right, right. right in front of their, their balconies. Uh, yeah. And like you said, these are to be gifted mm. to scientists, teachers, uh, people of merit. Um, right. So these are a different project than the, the 10,000 homes. This mansion is being destroyed. I don't suppose you know whether that's the uh, the old mansion that Prince Sihanouk, Norodom Sihanouk of Cambodia lived in during his period of exile. No, no, no. That's that's out on the outskirts of, of ah. East Pyongyang. That's like Cambodian architecture palace looking thing. This is just there are so many of these um, big buildings uh, like mansion looking buildings and even in the center of Pyongyang. Um, and there's, I, I think there must be information about this building, but I just didn't have it in my open source kind of mm -hmm. maps and stuff. So, um, but it's interesting that they're going to destroy this. So it's going to be new apartments on a hill surrounded by trees. And Kim Jong-un seemed really interested in this. Like he said, the designers are, um, they don't know anything about uh, urban afforestation and natural landscapes being implemented in their designs. So huh. That's what he wants. Well, he's got quite some. He's got some priorities there. Interesting. Uh, speaking of construction projects, how are things going with the Kalma Beach Resort on the east coast near Wonsan? Yeah, so that's a project that started at the beginning of 2018. Uh, hundreds of buildings, thousands of hotel rooms, uh, two water parks, all sorts of stuff. Uh, originally, it was supposed to open in April 2019. Then it got delayed two times and now it's delayed indefinitely so mm. the last deadline it was supposed to open in april 2020 maybe COVID affected that maybe sanctions not allowing them to get in all the materials they needed but it looks pretty much done out on the east coast uh, but from satellite imagery but we don't know anything about the interiors or and state media has very rarely been reporting on it um mm. So I did a story last week based on satellite imagery, and there's still some activity. Uh, they could open this year. They're 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 taking down the the temporary homes where the soldier builders are living and working from. But given that it's a resort for tourism, uh, and North Korea has cut itself off from the outside world, and there hasn't been much international travel anyway because of COVID nineteen, does it look like the the North would be able to put this resort to any good use anytime soon? Yeah, I mean, if they opened, I think um, from what I've been told by tourism experts, the, the people who run tours into North Korea, they always tell me, uh, they they always tell me, don't say that it's fully for international tourists um, because there is a big element of, of hosting domestic tourists or sure. um, more so domestic uh, worker groups like as rewards mm. for um, like students or work groups, factories. Uh, they'll go out to these resorts. So they, you know, North Korea opened a resort, this hot springs resort that they yeah. built completely really quickly in 2019. And that still hasn't seen any international tour groups as far as I know, not a single one. And um, is even domestic tourism happening under uh, the uh, sort of movement restrictions to fight the pandemic? Yeah, I would say it is uh, oh. because I could see before winter, the two big ski resorts, one at the Hot Springs and one at the Mashingyang ski, ski Resort. Mm -hmm. They were preparing those ski resorts. They were laying down artificial snow before the winter season. So I would say that there's evidence that there are, that these resorts are hosting domestic groups or tourists. And they also show it sometimes on state media that they are hosting domestic groups. Okay, now are there any details on these construction project stories that uh, didn't make it to print? The two ones that Kim Jong-un inspected this week, the, the 10,000 homes in Southeast Pyongyang and this more fancy project uh, in the shadow of the infamous Rugang Hotel, I think that these, he said, both need to be completed before the end of this year. 
um, which is quite ambitious. And I would just uh, say that pretty much every major construction project in the past few years has been delayed. So a delay is probably inevitable, but they, I would say you probably will say, see these start to take shape in the next few months, as far as the concrete shell of these buildings, which they can build just using the, the labor of the soldiers uh, and the materials that they can get domestically. It's really all about, can they fit these interiors with things that they do not produce domestically? And I've been told that seems pretty much impossible due to the COVID-19 border restrictions. But what about the Pyongyang General Hospital? Did that ever get finished? State media is pretty mum on that. Mm. It's uh, looks, again, it looks pretty much completed from the outside. Uh, one year ago, Kim Jong-un opened, did the ceremony for that one and said that was the top priority to give the people their first modern hospital in Pyongyang. And uh, that missed its deadline of October and it's hasn't got a new deadline. So this is this new trend where in past years, Kim Jong-un was always officially announcing delays and getting mad at people. But once on comma, the hospital just ignored it completely, didn't announce a new delay, just let it pass. So that's interesting. There's one thing I want to draw attention to, if yeah. I may, that I think may be of interest to any policymakers in the United States, which is, you know, we are familiar with these delays um, visibly impacting construction projects. And I was wondering, uh, how do they impact missile programs? Um, you know, North Korea's missiles, short range, medium range, long range, are either solid fuel or liquid fuel propellants. Um, presumably, uh, the inputs that are required for some of those propellants uh, are necessary to be imported. And so I wonder if we may see restraint on missile testing as mm. a result of the borders being closed for a, a long period of time, because if military planners are unsure of when the borders will reopen, then um, you would be cautious about wanting to overtest if you have a finite amount of fuel available for your missiles. So yeah, it's just one thing to keep in mind where we may see impacts from the world of COVID right. on North Korean missile testing patterns and behavior. Right? Maybe Michelle has something to say about that, but they're not, they haven't completely sealed the border for a year now. They have had things come in and if they have a priority on it and they obviously have a priority on their missiles uh, program, and I can see in construction when they're building things like buildings related to their military, uh, those get built a lot quicker sometimes. Um, so, I, I mean, I think they, if they have a priority, what do you think, Min Chow, that they would, they would still be able to bring those in? Uh, yeah, but North Korea also has its own ability to refine its own propellant. Mm. Um, so as long as they have crude, uh, which they do, it's supplied um, through, there's a cutout in, uh, UNSCR sanctions for crude oil coming in through the Dandong Sinuju pipeline. There's a small chance that they are um, smuggling in through maritime means crude oil, although maritime smuggling is usually um, various kinds of refined oil. What I'm saying is they have the capacity and also the inputs to make their own propellant. Ah, uh, it just takes a bit longer. Propellant, I don't think that's based on crude oil oh not solid sorry i was just talking about um liquid fuel yeah right so, yeah they, 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 colin's right i think yeah it's definitely going to be a priority um but yeah I, I i'm there may also be an impact just because all of their supply lines seem to be uh, experiencing turbulence at the moment to be honest i'm uh, surprised that it's lasted uh, this long without uh uh, too many effects uh, visible from uh, COVID-19 shutdown. But, and you know, Jack, I'll just say one more thing on the evidence of short supply of materials. Uh, the, uh, on the construction, back in, in the February big uh, plenum meeting that Kim Jong-un uh, convened, uh, the construction field officially tried to lower the plan for building uh, these 10,000 homes. They tried to decrease the goal. Oh. Uh, and this is a quote from state media, under the excuse of the supply of materials and labor. Mm. And then Kim Jong-un reversed that and said, these are the seeds of self-protection and defeatism of officials. So the, the construction field is admitting uh, that they're expecting a short supply of materials. So I don't right. know. But, but they're yeah, told, and, and, do it anyway. 
Yeah. And a source, a source uh, I know who's close to the North Koreans said that they were tapping on the shoulders of some groups for uh, inputs for the construction field just days before this announcement was made, mm. um, which the source said was a little unusual. Um, and the subsequent announcement of a major construction project kind of undermined it. Now, Chad, we have just nine minutes left, and I would like to hear a little bit about the sleuthing that you've done uh, online and with sources and satellite images to find out what happened to the Korea Kumgang Group or KKG. Set the scene for us. What is the Korea Kumgang Group and how is it founded? Well, before I do that, it's Colin and I are working on this together. Ah, um, so, so KKG, Korea Kumgang Group, is a North Korean conglomerate uh, it's been around since around 2006. Uh, it was under the auspices of the National Defense Commission, so strong military connections back in the day. It was a magnet for uh, controversial foreign investment, most notably the Queensway Group, um, this sort of shadowy uh, organization that had a shared address in Hong Kong that brought together uh, several companies of concern. Um, and there was a Chinese, believed to be a Chinese national called, called Sam Park, the center mm. of that. Anyway, most people on the podcast that um, have been to North Korea would be familiar with KKG from seeing the taxis uh, that go around. Yeah, they're red the city. tops. Yeah, they're kind of like maroon and, and gold colored. Mm. Um, and basically, KKG had lots of elaborate plans. There was evidence of growing investment, but then um, everything sort of went quiet during the last two years. And basically what Colin and I tried to do is to figure out what's happened to get KKG and the taxis turned out to be quite a useful indicator for, for that. Right, because you, you found photographs where the, the logos or the decals had been taken off the taxis. Yeah, this uh, I think that can be an early indicator. I think maybe Chad, uh, the... The whole thing here is it's a large North Korean conglomerate tasked with making money ab abroad, I guess, and then also developing um, new industries uh, domestically. But the the turning point was a what was the date, Chad? Uh, this bus crash in North Korea yeah. where dozens of Chinese citizens died in a bus crash, and uh, that was that had KKG. That was a KKG bus and a KKG tour. What was that about? That was back in February 20, sorry, April 2018. It was mm. just just a few days before Kim Jong-un and Moon Jae-in shaked hands in Panmunjom for the first time. Um, and yeah, that bus crash, what we understood having talked to sources, uh, apparently led to this, this sort of president of uh, KKG being executed, a lot of punishment for senior KKG uh, associates and what you see after that is that um, in photos street level photos the KKG signs started getting removed from the taxis uh, the taxi parking lots outside the KKG bank uh, one of their side projects all suddenly disappeared uh, a KKG coffee shop and restaurant suddenly closed to to guests uh, so lots of little indicators like that which basically suggests it's either massively downsized its operations or it's been completely shut down and its assets um, provided to other North Korean companies. But yeah, we I think we're publishing it today. And um, yeah. And is it the case that the founder of the KKG appears to have been executed? The president, mm, president. of KKG, who was a, a military man that had been um, apparently picked by um one of the senior uh, kkg staff to to lead the company and be the sort of bridge between the hong kong chinese investment and north korea operations but the one of the really interesting things is we spoke to a defector in washington dc um who was the original kkg chairman uh he shared us some photos or uh of him flying private jets with mm. the Sampa. So we got some really interesting human intel on the story to combine with the satellite imagery and stuff we've been hearing from sources in Pyongyang. So it's like a kind of real 360 of um, 
inputs and uh wow. the, the the thing that i think uh, readers will think about when they see the story is well that's a that's an important money-making operation that's an important uh thing to probably kim jong-un himself i've seen evidence myself that this is under still under the the supreme commander the these these construction projects there's the tower in pyongyang which also uh in a really prime real estate on the on the river that uh 30-story tower has also been delayed uh or, or um not moving along in in the last year and a half so previously under the national defense commission so um why would why would they shoot themselves in the foot like this uh mm. just because they uh, a lot of chinese people died in this bus crash that was run by kkg why would they shut down this entire operation or or what have they done with it, it uh, we don't actually know huh. it's kind of a similar question to the malaysia situation um why cut off ties and cut off this uh probably successful uh money-making operation in mm. in malaysia just based on the extradition i think it kind of uh, displays their priorities uh, but they're not clear priorities, but yeah. So to our listeners, do go on the uh, NK News website and have a look for that story that will be up by the time this uh, podcast is released uh, about the uh, Korea Kumgang group. Uh, lastly, to all of you, um, what uh, events or stories will you be looking forward to in the next week or two? Yeah, I can go. I, I would say uh, this coming week or two weeks, we will see the Youth League Conference, the Youth League Congress open in Pyongyang. So probably Kim Jong-un will attend this multi-day event. The last Congress, I think, was in 2016 after the, the main party Congress back then. So uh, the Youth League is gathering to talk about getting their ideology, their ideological teachings straight, making sure that they've, the party's teachings uh, have full control over the youth of North Korea. And uh, I think it'll be pretty interesting, probably pretty nuanced or not so interesting on the face of it, but hoping we see some good analyses on the, the Youth League Conference. Mm. And also there's gonna be another conference of party cell secretaries, which is like local level party leaders throughout the country. They're all gonna come to Pyongyang and gather also in early April. So that's another chance for Kim Jong-un to show up and talk about the importance of the decisions of the Congress right. and uh, all, of, all of the things that the party wants to do in these difficult times. Okay, thanks. Min Chao, what do you got your eyes on? Uh, yeah, so I also do ship tracking for NK Pro. And um, I think end of March is, we're going to look back at the, look back at this period as probably when um, North Korea began to lift some of its trade restrictions, um, mm. mostly because we're seeing increasing movement of ships uh, through February. But now um, a lot of ships that haven't been on AS for a long time um, returning and going to commercial Chinese ports. Uh. Um, it's, I, th I think it's quite interesting. Yeah. Um, and then also this is not really something that I'm looking forward to for next week or in the coming weeks, but I am expecting, fully expecting someone to get snatched in retaliation for Mun. I just know this is going to happen. And it's um, a- Where, inside North Korea or? No, I don't, well, all I'm going to say is I think it's a very lucky coincidence that um, North Korea is in a position right now where they don't want to bring anyone to the country. Right. Combined with an active uh, U.S. ban on U.S. citizens traveling to North Korea. Yeah. Um, I think that might impede any possibility of kidnapping, but mm. I fully expect um, this to happen in, gosh, in the coming years. Let's Goodness. Say. All right. Keep an eye on that one. Uh, Chongwen, what have you got your eyes on? Oh, the defector number, the first quarter defector number will come out very soon. And uh -huh. the next month, the priority for me is to look out for any potential reach out from South Korea to North Korea because it's soon the third year anniversary of the Panmunjom Declaration. Right. And South Korean Unification Ministry already had set forth to like, and looked for companies to build this new special um, conference room, video conference room to talk with North Korea to match, it yeah. seems, end of April. So I'll be looking forward to listening to any news. All right, thanks. And Chad, finally? Um, playing it by ear mostly. 
Um, but one thing I'm publishing in the next couple of days is a series of photos from inside North Korea taken by um, a source who very recently left the country. It's the first photo album basically from inside the country for over a year. I think Ooh. that anyone will have seen that's like not officially approved by KCNA or anything like that. Um, mm. you, nothing like jaw dropping about the photos, but it's just interesting to see um, the conditions inside the country after so long. Uh, one thing I kind of noticed is that there are lots of oxes and carts and I didn't really see any serious number of vehicles in the, in the photos. So that was quite interesting in 2021, North Korea. Final, Always good to see thing, some rare glimpses. Final thing, obviously the, the policy review. So the white house announced that they're in the final stages of this North Korea policy review ah. might be, might be coming up in April, maybe not, but you know, I think that's going to be the big kickoff point for how uh, the Biden administration and North Korea uh, interact for the coming few years so look out for the the policy review excellent all right well thank you to chatter carol jungman kim collins Wirko, and min chow Choi for joining me on the podcast via zoom today ladies and gentlemen if you've already got an nk news account and you're a think tank business or academic institution do take a look at nk pro our nk pro platform offers unparalleled services specifically catered to the needs of professionals who monitor developments on the Korean Peninsula. Today, we've already discussed the missile tracker and the ship tracker on NK Pro. Inquire about access at membership at nknews.org today. Our thanks, as always, to James Fretwell and Chatter Carroll for facilitating the podcast and to Arius Dare, our post-recording producer genius who cuts out all the extraneous noises, echoes, awkward silences, bodily functions, etc. Thanks and join us again next time. Mm-hmm.